Escape velocity. a lot of death threats. Someone's saying I'm gonna kill you. Is someone gonna kill me? He was the activist guy from Austin. That's everything that Brandon was. He was the symbol of what radical activism could do. The people here were left to die, working with people from around the country to get water and food and medicine. For several years after the storm, Brandon was considered this hero, this god. The biggest mystery at the heart of all this is how does a radical activist end up working for the FBI as an informant? Two people came. There was David McKay and Brad Crowder. They talked about what their hopes were for the Republican National Convention. Gasoline in a bottle, we duct taped the top. It was incredibly easy. I was contacted by the FBI, and they'd asked me to wear a wire. I know that those things can be made to make Molotov cocktails. They are going to hurt people, and I need to do something about it. But the FBI made a terrible mistake sending Brandon Darby into that situation. He's like, Brandon's with the FBI. I was like, he was anti police, anti establishment. There's no way in hell it could be Brandon Darby. Two Texas men are now charged with plotting to attack police with Molotov cocktails. He's a misogynist. He's a liar. David was manipulated. His loyalty was with the FBI. These guys would have thrown Molotov cocktails at innocent individuals. He was just doing the right thing. Bradley Crowder could face up to 10 years in prison. Was he my friend, or has he been playing me for the biggest dupe ever in my life? He's been living a double life for years. What is the truth? Chris, prior to last week, were you familiar with the case of Brandon Darby? Uh... Very vaguely at one point in my life, like most facts, I once knew them and then 10 minutes later I didn't. Right. The story of Brandon Darby, which is a few years old now, is uh, of an activist from Austin named Brandon Darby who rose to prominence uh, during the aftermath of Hurricane... Relative prominence. Relative prominence in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Right. Uh, he was doing work with the Common Ground Relief Collective. Didn't he found it? Uh, he he posits himself as a co-founder. Posits himself as a co-founder. A um, community-based. Community-based uh, response to uh, the, the lack of food, water, medical care uh, after Hurricane Katrina for the residents who were too poor or did not have the means or were unwilling to evacuate uh, during the storm. Specifically, uh, the black community. Specifically, the black community, because the, 
by and large, the poor community in New Orleans is is predominantly black. And they were and essentially the, left to die. Essentially left to die in the Lower Ninth Ward. And also, after the storm, these, some would call them gangs of, roving gangs of white, predominantly white militias, who, under the guise of stopping looting, you know, while poor people were trying to get the means to... Survive. just survived day to day were just being shot indiscriminately it was a the social order broke down and uh so there was some vigilante or the social order was emphasized good point excellent point if i do say so myself <laughs> but a bit of a distraction from what you were trying to say <laughs> so who the fuck was brandon darby what who what the fuck was he doing he was helping people him and other activists uh, were helping those left behind after to, Katrina. To survive and rebuild. To survive and rebuild and to defend themselves right. with arms against some of these uh, some of these militias. And the cops. And the cops. And other private security forces as well. Okay. So why are we, t- why are we talking about this now? This story, this happened in, uh, Katrina was in 2005. And this whole story that we're about to cover is now years old. This is because there's a new documentary that was just released and the kind people at Aid in a Bet gave, gave us a pre-release copy to watch. It's called Informant. It's a documentary by a filmmaker named Jamie Meltzer and it covers the story of Brandon Darby starting out as an activist and turning eventually into an undercover FBI informant where he informed on young activists, very young activists, who went to the Republican National Convention in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, in 2008. And his actions led directly to their arrest and imprisonment. So this was highly controversial in the activist community. Uh, many people, when the allegations first came out about Darby, rose to his defense. Yeah, they were, in, they were in, impossible in disbelief was, that this, yeah. this firebrand could have turned his colors to that of the federal government yes yeah this the documentary is pretty crazy i would say it's, yeah let's not give away let's not spoil it no because there wanna, is there is there are some twists that are unexpected and and i think what what i would call a a bombshell at the end but maybe just to just to go over briefly the story so people understand the narrative right that we're talking about darby goes down to katrina he helps found common ground um, they're doing great work in the community, highly lauded by the residents there. Uh, and in fact, he still is spoken of very highly for the, for the work that he did. By some people. By some people in the community. Some felt betrayed. In New Orleans? Yep. Not the documentary. Everyone in- Which one in, were you watching? In New Orleans, the people that- The guy with the dreads? Oh, M- Malik. Right. That's right. Then as media coverage- grew over the work of the common ground collective it caught the ear of some say hugo chavez or others in the venezuelan government right who offered to to give material support to common ground uh, in the form of city go gas cards which is a venezuelan owned gas chain but then they also invited brandon down to visit venezuela mm-hmm. uh, and he had some sort of according to him he had some sort of dreams of witnessing the social revolution that was taking place in Venezuela. He thought very highly of it. And then he claims that he went down, his dreams were dashed. It was suggested that he was being involved with the FARC. 
Right, but, but it almost in, seemed like in Colombia, his storyline was that he was being set up by some dark agents in in the Venezuelan administration to perhaps have him perhaps disappeared. Is that what he implied? He was implying that, but the whole story—the whole story—is crazy. Yeah, but nobody, and, and, nobody in the in the movie actually challenges that. They all accept it as being well. They all accept that he went down, but then basically, what happened down there is basically his word against. Well, they don't give. There's no opposing viewpoint represented yeah. by anybody in the Venezuelan administration or anybody in Venezuela. Period. He just comes back and and after the fact. Years later, when he's explaining himself, specifically in this documentary, because I don't think before this documentary, he's told that story anywhere. Hmm. But he claims that this was kind of the beginning of a turning point for him, where he started thinking, maybe these leftist politics are are not the right way to go. So apparently he comes back, he's very scattered. Uh, he becomes a, more of a controversial figure in the activist community for his authoritarian style. A lot of his dealings with women in the community. Mm-hmm. Very controversial. <laughs> Rings a bell. Anyway, through through a series of incidents that he describes that I won't go into, it's all laid out in the documentary, he claims that he underwent a transformation where he felt like the left, by and large, was willfully ignoring or tacitly supporting acts which he considered to be violent or immoral. And he says that this led him to call the FBI to tip off about a specific situation which involved laundering money to send to unknown organizations in Palestine. Right. So he claims that this is the beginning of his relationship with the FBI. He forms a relationship with his handler, and then he is thereafter recruited to go undercover into activist movements in order to report back to the FBI and secure convictions for crimes that he alleges that he witnesses. So let's not ruin the rest of the story for for the viewers because it plays out. No, I really want to ruin it. Oh, please let me ruin it. Oh, all right. No, it plays out not unlike a Hollywood thriller. Yeah, with and ri- then, absurd, ridiculous twists and and a a finale that is unbelievable so and a sad commentary on the human condition and life in the universe as we know it even microbial life on another planet i believe is affected by the brandon darby story yes what were your what was your takeaway you watched this first well i think i think derek for you and i i'll speak on both of our behalves right now. Thank you. I'm sure this rang a lot of fucking bells for us <laughs> throughout the movie from start to finish. Yeah. Because we've been, we've been involved in activism, mm-hmm. immersed, steeped in activist culture at different periods of our life. For more lives. or less, lately less, previously more. Yeah. But maybe more effectively now than before. <laughs> but I, I'm not implying that we've necessarily come across right. actual informants wouldn't be surprised, but I think it was more the characters or, or I should say the fucking caricatures of characters involved in activist work that just, it was like every town's got one of each, yeah. you know, or five of each depending yeah. on the level of 
engagement with the community. And I, at times I was laughing my fucking head off and at times just shaking my head in sadness at how cartoonish we all are. Yeah. There were definitely many moments where I'm like, Oh God, the number of threads you could pull from the characters in that movie to individuals in our own lives here in Winnipeg. Yeah. Not mentioning any names out there, not implying anybody out there. No, of course not. No, we all know that Paul Burroughs is not an RCMP informant. He's definitely an RCMP informant. If you ever see Paul Burroughs, stab him. (laughs) Informant. Yeah, it really hit a little too close to home in some in some humorous ways and in some depressing ways. But it also reminded me of uh, like the first time I ever came across this informant stuff. I'd read like the Cointel Pro papers and stuff, the mm-hmm. Churchill book, and knew about the level of infiltration that was going on in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But it, it, it seemed distant and far removed from our world. And it wasn't until the mid-90s when I read a book called Web of Hate, which was about ultra-right uh, neo-Nazis in Western Canada. Uh, it was written by Warren Kinsella, and it talked about people who were infiltrating the white supremacist movement. Right. And they, they talked about Winnipeg specifically about a certain person here who used to be involved with white supremacy and how they had somebody become part of his life for, I think it was two years while they were trying to collect information on him to prosecute him with something. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time thinking, holy fuck, they actually put this much time and energy and resources and years of a of another person's life to fucking lie to this person's face mm-hmm. for this long to trick them to entrap them to whatever to to hopefully secure some sort of conviction for something and uh, that was the first time i thought i started thinking hmm looking around me at everybody we know and thinking well could be anybody yeah and and this person was in this guy's life for two fucking years yeah uh so why wouldn't they put somebody in for five or ten if they thought it was gonna if it was gonna work right and who knows what level of dedication and commitment the person would have to the to the project so you never know mm-hmm. Derek hogue are you fucking spying on me <laughs> i well i am i mean i'm not i'm not working for anybody but subject says he's not working for anybody <laughs> For me, the takeaway of the movie isn't the personality, possible personality disorders that lead someone to become a fucking informant. Yeah. Or to, or, and to become an activist in the first place, even. Yeah. You know? I think, I think the takeaway is, is the perniciousness, the audacity, the ubiquity, the intestinal fortitude, the intestinal fortitude, the penal archipelago just the level that the powers that be will go to mm-hmm. to infiltrate small groups of people who are doing seemingly good work for humanity. Well, and this is this is the other thing that it made me think about because like I think a lot of people have pointed out in this case and in other cases specifically in Canada which I'll talk about in a minute that the amount of money and resources that is put into some of these cases is no one can justify it even the most law and order mainstream status quo ideologue would have trouble justifying this amount of resources for a group of people who in recent memory in recent decades have never actually hurt another person yeah the worst anywhere the worst example is some property damage yeah 
but connected to that, because I started thinking about going undercover into the right wing movements, which is also something that, you know, in the States, the FBI has done and the RCMP has done uh, in Canada, or even from there to think about uh, animal rights organizations that send people undercover into slaughterhouses, deceiving those around them in order to capture evidence of what they know is going on. So the interesting question is, where is that line given if we want to assume that well there's no comparison between an animal rights group putting somebody into a slaughterhouse to record what happens there compared to well, animal, animal rights a, activists don't go into a slaughterhouse and have to entrap other workers or the or no. the machines to do what they're doing the federal government is in entrapping young people is trying to guide young people into doing things that they can prosecute and make a list of of successful convictions. Yeah, I mean, especially since 9-11, this has been the MO of the federal government in the US and even in Canada. Most of the plots that are foiled, quote unquote foiled, are plots which originated with the authorities themselves. But, right, but right. I'm in the grand scale, phil- philosophically, I guess I'm speaking, there is a line where in a world which is possibly not this world where we do empower people with special powers in order to keep society as a whole safe from people who would injure or kill others because they disagree with who they are or what they are or what they believe in. Like neo-Nazis say, have a history, a documented history of killing people, actually causing serious damage to, to other humans. So, you can say, well, you can see a justification in monitoring those groups and, if necessary, putting undercover people into those groups. Obviously not with the, the goal to entrap them. I haven't read Web of Hate, but perhaps there was evidence in that book of RCMP entrapment of neo-Nazis in order to secure convictions. But, like, I mean, like you say, we know that in slaughterhouses, these, these abuses are happening. And you send undercover investigators in to find those things. But that can apply to the extreme right in the United States and Canada as well. We know there's a documented history. We know that things are being planned. But yeah, I don't know. Where's that line? I guess what I'm saying is it did make me ponder the nature of the ethics involved. You know, obviously, you and I both think that all of this energy expended on quote-unquote leftist activism in North America, we don't think that that is a just target for these massive surveillance and undercover operations because, like we said, they are actually not hurting people. They are truly working for better... You can disagree with the ideology. You can disagree with the end goal, but there has been no demonstrated violent intent on a whole which you can't really say with right-wing movements. I don't think. Right. But we don't get to direct policy at the highest levels of government. Not yet. But I'm working on it with this guy I met from the RCMP. Did those thoughts occur to you at all? Were you were you drawing any parallels in your head when you were watching the movie thinking about No. No, I just, I just, I was just straight up thinking about who the fuck is telling on me? <laughs> who the fuck amongst the people we know is fucking one of these goons? And fuck, 
damned if I didn't pick a whole fucking bunch of people who I think are just who fit a profile that matches this fucking Brandon Darby character mm-hmm. and are or are kind of caricatures in some other some other way that reflects what I perceive to be a personality disorder. But I'm sure most of Winnipeg thinks I have a personality disorder. So they probably think I'm a snitch. I would confirm that diagnosis. The snitch or the personality disorder? The personality disorder. I don't think you're working for the federal government. I'm too lazy to work for the federal government. They've tried to hire you several times and you've inquired with them how much you will get paid. And then the emails just kind of stop. So in Canada, we have a recent history of undercover infiltration into activist movements mm-hmm. yeah. as well freshest on people's minds or maybe not uh in 2009 and 2010 this was leading up to uh there were kind of three big events that were lightning rods for activist movements in canada around that time there was the release like, of our record supporting cast that was a bit of a lightning rod <laughs> no chris there were the 2010 vancouver olympics and then the G8 and G20 summits that both took place in Ontario in 2010. So what came out, starting right at the beginning of the G20 protests anyway, when scores of activists were preemptively arrested uh, before the summit and the concomitant protests could get underway, it turns out that there was this joint intelligence group uh, formed in Canada. This has participation from the RCMP uh, CSIS, which is like Canada's spy agency, mm-hmm. uh, the OPP, which is the Ontario Provincial Police, as well as local police forces all across Canada. And uh, according to documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, there were about 12 different undercover informants across Canada uh, in different movements. And specifically in this case of the of the G20 protests, when it went to trial, there were two officers from the OPP, uh, Bindo Showin and Brenda Carey, that revealed as undercovers. And the activists in the community in Toronto were like, what the fuck? You know, these are people that, this was, you know, an operation that went on for 18 months. And these are people who had befriended the activists. Mm. Um, They'd gotten very close. Over the course of a year and a half, you know, organizing a protest with people, you form pretty close relationships much like in the case of brandon darby people were just in disbelief but yeah again these people showed up well enough ahead of time that people weren't suspicious and then they disappeared immediately when the protest started Mm -hmm. and uh you know talking to people in that community they almost feel like the main goal of these tactics on the part of the canadian government is not necessarily to find criminality and get convictions but to sow the seeds of distrust right. the chilling and effect. suspicion yeah, within the activist community. Yeah. Because in that sense, it is worth all the money that, that they spend on it. Because if nobody trusts each other, nobody's going to organize anything. Yeah, it's not going to be a very effective Whether movement. it's Brendan Darby who does an about face or whether it's a cop that's infiltrating your... Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can turn. Yeah. Anybody can turn and anybody could who shows up you know, any Johnny come lately, you, everyone's going to think it's a fucking cop. Yeah. And you've seen that. I've seen that happen at protests too. People are pointing at somebody, fucking cop, cop, fucking cop over here. And the person's like, actually it happened to Jordan Hopper. What? At, uh, was that in, uh, in 2001, people were pointing at them, fucking cop, fuck cop over here. And they're what, like, what Quebec? the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Hopper, a cop. <laughs> but yeah, that, that could crazy. become, that could become dangerous. Yes. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it can just destroy any hope of uh, organizing 
you know, a, an effective movement. Mm-hmm. So actually, and a, a friend of mine back from the zine days, uh, Charmaine Khan, she was involved in the organizing in Toronto. What zine? I've never had a zine. I don't know what you just heard. Hmm. That was your handlers talking to you in your earpiece. Oh, oops. Subject did not have a zine. Charmaine was involved in the, in the organizing of the G20 protests and she had firsthand unknowing firsthand uh, experience with uh, these undercover officers. And she agreed to talk to us to maybe give us a little bit of insight of what that experience was like and maybe give us some advice on how people who are organizing to make the world a better place can deal with the fear and threat of undercover infiltrators. Charmaine, you were involved in organizing some of the protest actions planned for the G20 summit that took place in Toronto in June 2010. I'm just wondering what your initial reaction was when the news broke that the RCMP had undercover police involved in this same organizing for well over a year beforehand. I think some of us knew that there was some presence of the police in our organizing. And you could also kind of tell when cops would show up Canadians. Uh, beyond that, in terms of having the two that we know for sure about, uh, Brenda Carey and Bindo Schoen, that they were you know, part of the organizing for 18 months, came to a shock for sure, because it also turned out to be apparently the largest spy operation that the police had ever undertaken in Canadian history. And so the scale, I mean, shocked me personally because, one, mobilizations like this weren't uh, that uncommon in Canada, like when huge finance meetings happened. And, and secondly, the tactics that we were organizing weren't uh, that unique. So the fact that, you know, they, that warranted the largest spy operation ever, that came to a shock. But I guess on a more personal level, Brenda Carey was on the finance and fundraising committee with me, and so we had weekly meetings at my apartment. She was in my apartment for many months, and uh, and we became friends. So for me to learn that she was an actual, you know, a police officer, was incredibly depressing. It made me really sad because I felt that I had met a new organizer and we had connected, you know, and uh, and I also felt like I myself couldn't trust my own judgment because she had basically access to my apartment and to all the information, who donated, things like that. So tell me a little more about that. I'm just curious. How did she present herself to you and to, you know, the other people involved? And, you know, how did you get to know her so personally? Right. I mean, she she infiltrated first in Guelph and befriended comrades of mine in Guelph um, and moved into one of their houses. So she was essentially vouched for um, when the Toronto organizing began to kind of grow. Um, and she became more active in the larger meetings and had more of a presence. So, I mean, how she presented herself was um, actually pretty smart on their part. Her story to me was that she had left an abusive relationship and was starting over and really became inspired by animal rights activism and was really excited to get more involved with community-based organizing as a kind of a next, a new path for her, you know. And so she really had the language of healing. It really spoke to my feminist politics. Um, I offered her support in that realm and also respected her not giving more information than she wanted to because you want to respect the survivor's privacy and give them space to rebuild trust with people because 
you know, they've experienced so much violation. So, you know, I mean, that part was believable. I mean, I in, in our movements, we have people who have faced trauma. But at, uh, when I think about it, I didn't know too much. Like, if she had disappeared, for example, or gotten arrested, I actually don't know who her other friends were, her family is. And you kind of get, after months of organizing with people, you kind of get a sense of, like, okay, this person has a sister in this place or a partner. And, you know, her Facebook page was very vague, and she didn't give up much information, um, which I took as just, you know, I need to respect her need for privacy. In your view, what has the effect been on the activist community in Toronto uh, since this news came out? Mm-hmm. I mean, initially, it, it definitely created an environment of fear because of the shock of Brenda being, like, not only just a cop, because people had known her for so long, you know, like, for 18 months, she was part of the infiltration. So, you know, there was definitely a, a period of time right after when people were like, that person, I think they're a cop. That person, I think they're a cop. And... It was a very confusing time, you know, because often those people that are pointed out as, you know, kind of being sketchy, not having the best social skills, which is what the left tends to attract anyway, um, right. was, um, you know, people would be like, I think, you know, I actually haven't known them for over than two years. And so it really created this chill and this fear where on the one hand, yeah, we want to protect ourselves, but on the second hand, we also want to be open to people joining us, right? And I, I didn't. I don't think it didn't get out of control, but it created a lot of fear. You know, and when people after just like disappeared, sometimes I would wonder, like, were they were they a cop or are they just burnt out? You know, and it was yeah, it was a very confusing time. It really like you know impacted the trust that we all developed with each other. It was a pretty tight crew. But I mean, I think in the long term, I don't think many changes have been made. Like, I think we all organize with this understanding that, you know, if we threaten the state, the state will come down and will infiltrate. And, um, I, you know, I, I, per- I personally maybe didn't feel we warranted that much infiltration, but um, people have often commented that, you know, Bindo, for example, he went by Khalid Muhammad, I think, which was like activist name or spy name. And um, both both of them really used, like, kind of the anti-oppression politics so we wouldn't ask questions. So Brenda was an older woman surviving domestic violence. He was a Muslim man, older, you know, and um, people have often said that we need to, like, not give up our anti-oppression politics, but, like, we, we should be asking more questions, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it goes against those politics. Um, and I haven't resolved that for myself, you know. I'm not in the sake of security, going to force a woman to give more details about her personal life if she's so comfortable. But yeah, I think in the long term, not much has changed, really. I don't know any suggestion how people could prevent that, unless we want to give up the values of trust and openness you know, that we have. So do you think it's fair to say that more than actually stopping any sort of quote-unquote criminal activity, that that was the true intent of operations like this in order to spread uh, fear and suspicion within activist communities? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, like, to be honest, I don't think anyone wants to relive the actions of the G20 because, I mean, aside from the amount of infiltration that kind of tore apart the group or the community a bit, but the huge amount of evidence they gathered, which is all, I mean, the charges that came from that were, like, Whatever, encouraging mischief and some jail time. 
Um, it wasn't like the conspiracy charges were all dropped. So the charges that came out from the infiltration were like minimal. But it definitely has made us think like, what is worth it? You know, uh, we did so much time only to be basically in legal defense and litigation for, you know, two years after that, it, it cost a lot of money. We had to do a lot of fundraising and our attention to other, to other movements and to their actions was all focused on trying to free our friends, you know, who were now embroiled in, in legal cases and facing these undercover cops who gathered information on us. And at the end of the day, we didn't shut down the meetings. The meetings happened. Yes, a lot of people were radicalized during that day, and but for me personally, it was emotionally exhausting, and I felt that our attention was diverted when we could have, kept, you know, been doing other things. So yeah, I think it was a very clear strategy on their part to do that. And secondly, they kind of very well knew our culture. You know, I think in the Brandon Darby case, people were saying. Well, you know, he's a totally macho, so he should have known that he was an infiltrator. I don't know any signs that people could point out with these two informants, you know. Um, they knew the language. They had handlers. They, you know, I think she, like, showed up with a Derek Jensen book or something. I don't know. So um, I'm not sure, yeah, how we could have sussed that out. Charmaine, I want to thank you for taking the time to discuss this with us today. I do have one final question for you, though. Yeah. How long have you been a member of Al-Qaeda? Uh, I, I can't, I'm allergic to told me not to answer that question. I know that you're not a member of Al-Qaeda for anyone listening. <laughs> not yet, anyway. I mean, I know you joke, right? But I mean, I feel like the infiltration that they did on us was like terrorism level. Like, they really equated people like smashing a few windows as like a form of domestic terrorism or something that warranted like, you know, millions of dollars of, um, I mean, the fact that the G20 organizers will go down as the largest spy operation versus other quote-unquote terrorists in Canada that apparently exist is um, really bewildering, also considering that the main reason we came, that we came together was around a politics of liberation, that we wanted to call on these so-called leaders in the businesses that continue to like exploit our resources, exploit workers, we want to hold them accountable. That was seen as more worthy than, you know, other forms of domestic terrorism or whatever. It's just, um, it's just really sad. Hit the screams and send a 42. Loud enough to burst the screams out. The opposition's tongue is cut in two. Keep off the street because you're in danger. 100,000 disparos. Lost in the jails in South America Curl up, baby Curl up tight Curl up, baby Keep it all outside Undercover Keep it all outside Undercover of the So that was Toronto-based activist and organizer. And terrorist. And terrorist, Charmaine Khan, uh, discussing her experiences, being nestled in with, with an OPP infiltrator. Pretty crazy story. I think that the thing that actually that bothered me the most about what Charmaine said was the part where she talked about 
what's her name? Brenda. Brenda Carey. Where Brenda Carey passed herself off as a survivor of, of abuse. Yeah. I found that, I mean, if, if that's just part of her cover story, it's fucking offensive. I mean, I don't know how ideologically committed or unreachable somebody must be to be an agent of the state who would be able to play themselves off in, in such a way and not go home at night and just feel dirty. Look in the mirror and just be disgusted with the yeah. lie they're they're telling. They're because they're they're not just telling a lie. They're drawing somebody into it and 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 playing on uh, genuine, fundamentally empathetic human emotions. The desire to protect someone, the desire to help someone in a vulnerable situation, right? In order to spy on completely open, public, legal protests, you right? Know? It is offensive. Brenda Carey, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, <laughs> fuck you. You know what? Fuck you. But you know what? I would be curious about the level of experienced cognitive dissonance on on the part of these undercover police officers going through this whole process. You spend 18 months, you get to know these people. Clearly, you must realize that they... Perhaps they pose an existential threat to the state merely by their politics, but they pose no physical threat to, no physical threat certainly to any people and barely a physical threat to any institution. And you go through this process, you see how it ends in basically no charges. How do you feel when you come out? Like maybe these people are like, you know what, fuck, I'm, I'm not doing that again because I do feel dirty. Well, you know, should sure. we give them the benefit of the doubt that perhaps they are human enough to realize that it was just a farce or do they feel much like r- retroactively Brendan Darby professes to feel that he did a good thing. He's proud of what he's done. He stopped these potentially dangerous actions, you know? Well, everybody who's not a sociopath would have those feelings, but... As soon as the state gives you a little fucking plaque right. or a little fucking badge that says you did good, that it erases it all for people. Another sad reflection on human nature. But no doubt this program of infiltration provides each agent with the kind of psychological preparation and a psychological debriefing to help them deal with right. these conflicts. But that's what stood out for me in what she had to say. Mm-hmm. In connection with that was, was that she... She now doubts herself about her ability to judge an ally from a cop. Another successful outcome of an operation like this. Yeah, that's why I assume you're a cop. Because then when I find out you're a cop, you think, I was right I was all right. along. I told you, Derek. <laughs> and then if it I turns told out- you you were a cop. <laughs> Dressed in blue, I want to be a friend to you. You can see me every day. I will wave my hand and say it's my job, and I like it fine. No one has a better job than mine. No one has a better job than mine. So that's just, these are just a couple of small windows into the world of undercover operations, undercover informants, 
uh, in North American activist movements. There are many more examples, you know, especially since 9-11 in the States, there have been a ton of stories of undercover plots later exposed when they went to trial and widely derided as blatant entrapment by the authorities. And uh, I guess it's nothing new in the big picture. You mentioned before being aware of, you know, Cointelpro operations in the 60s and 70s. But given the political environment in the past decade or so, uh, these things have just intensified. And if you're listening and you are involved in community organizing or political activism, which probably none of you are, just, uh, you know, keep your ears open for uh, any possible job openings for Chris Hanna (laughs) as an undercover informant. Check out the movie Informant. Yeah, the documentary is called Informant. It is by Jamie Meltzer, and you can check it out at informantdoc.com. I'll check it out. You already saw it. I already saw it. I don't need to see it again, do I? No. Good. I don't have time. I have to report to my handler. Subject just closed his iPad. That's it for episode 13 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by an undercover police officer. We want your feedback, people. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or you can leave us a voicemail, which no one does, on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. To join the non-existent discussion about this episode or to check out the very sparse show notes, visit our rarely maintained website at escapevelocityradio.com. And if you're not already, which I'm sure you are, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or sign up for our email list if you would like to be notified each time a new episode is available. And if you want to join the other five people, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. 